Hey everyone, this is Mike Skinner. I want to welcome you to the sermon podcast for Sweetwater Christian Church. We are glad that you are interested in joining us as we follow Christ. If you'd ever like to support our ministry financially or just learn more about us, head on over to sweetwaterchristian.org. Thanks and God bless. Well, good morning. Good to see all of you once again. Most of us have kids. I myself do not. If you don't have children, you've probably had a sibling or you have family with small children. And, and the question I want to start off with this morning is, have you ever thought about, if you are a parent, giving your kid away? I'm told they don't come with, I'm told they don't come with receipts. I mean, definitely receipts for like hospital bills and stuff, but no return policy uh, per se. Like I said, I don't have children. When I was 13 years old, though, my, my parents um, had a, a, uh, another child, a little brother, um, not an accident. <laughs> and at the time, my parents were kind of moving up in the world. My dad was getting promotions, and, and we were building a pool in the backyard. And my sister and I, my older sister and I, were very excited about our new social status in life and the future ahead of us. And we were pretty devastated when we found out our parents irresponsibly decided to enlarge the family. And I love my little brother, and I loved him as a, as a baby. Um, but there were many times where I couldn't help but imagine just how great life would be. Uh, particularly when the pool got built. We had the option of building a hot tub or a small little waiting pool for a baby that would be useful for like a year or two until he outgrew it. And... Of course, we did not build a hot tub and instead built this baby pool, which I love still to this day, take my brother out and be like, you see that? You did that. This is your fault. <laughs> but alas, I was a minor. I had no real say in the manner. Definitely could not have given him up. Um, my experience teaching high schoolers had uh, some similar situations where I thought, man, I'd love to trade these kids um, for a new batch. <laughs> I know it might be a gamble, but we'll see what's going on. I had a class one year uh, of just seven kids. I taught a little private school, and so our class were pretty small, usually 20, 25. Um, but I had one period where it was just seven students, and that is either the best thing in the world or the worst thing in the world, depending on kind of the classroom atmosphere and the behavior of the students. And, and one day I was getting on to them, and, uh, you know, we had a good relationship, and, and so they were teasing me about it. Um, and I, uh, I said, you know what? I want just seven new students. I mean, I just want to, I want to start this thing over again. And one of my 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 students, being kind of sarcastic, would be like, "Well, then there'd be 14 of us. You want a class that's that's larger?" <laughs> I was like, "Okay, well played, well played." <laughs> the idea, though, of, of giving your children away or giving them back uh, to the Lord is a idea that you find throughout the Scriptures. Um, it's an idea that plays a powerful role both in the Old Testament and it's something that we find even in the life of our Savior. And when he was born as a child, Mary and Joseph took him to Jerusalem, presented him at the temple. Um, it's a tradition that's carried on throughout Christian history. Um, in fact, um, just this week, I decided to spend some more time looking up the history of baby dedications I'd always assumed it was something Protestants just kind of came up with because we didn't want to baptize infants. And we we're like, well, we still want, you know, a bigger service occasionally and family to be able to come. Uh, so we'll just do this prayer thing. 
But that's not actually the case. Even, even traditions that baptize infants, very famously the Eastern Orthodox Church, they also still have a dedication ceremony for children um, where they come and present them before the Lord. And, and like I mentioned earlier, it's kind of a parent dedication as well. It's kind of a congregation uh, dedication um, as well. Perhaps one of the most famous uh, baby dedications that we have in the scriptures, and one of the earliest, is the story of Samuel, the baby Samuel and his mother Hannah. And so what I want to do this morning is read the story together and ask ourselves what it might teach us about our own families and lives, and then also the larger work of God in the world. So if you have a Bible, let me invite you to open up with me to the book of First Samuel. If you don't have one, there is most likely a black hardback underneath the seat around you. Um, you are more than invited to join us. We're going to read, actually, we'll read a little bit, talk a little bit, but we'll actually read through verse 10 of chapter 2. And so um, it's a bit of a story uh, that we will go through. It's a very interesting story. It's a story that, again, as I was kind of studying and praying through the last few weeks, uh, realized my wife was very much more familiar with than I was. I'd be like, hey, Lindsay, did you know this? And this is funny, and this really, really caught my attention. And she's like, yeah, of course, I've. I've been on board with that for years. Um, so you might be more familiar with the story than I was originally, but I still think we have some, some great lessons um, to, to see here. And, and like all stories in the Bible, if you really pay close attention, they're human stories. And there's some drama, and there's some humor, and there's some interesting situations. Um, so we'll pick it up First Samuel chapter 1, verse 1. You'll have to excuse some of the name pronunciation, unless you can do better. I won't take any criticism. There was a certain man of Ramathim Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroboam, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, an Ephratite. Now, the point of this is to say he comes from a good family. These are all pretty important names. This is a stock dude here. He had two wives. Already, we're in a unique situation here. Now, now, let me use this as just a moment to give you a warning, okay? You should always have a little red flag come up when someone tells you that there's a singular biblical definition of something. Like the biblical picture of a family, or the biblical picture of a marriage, or the biblical picture of a government, things of this nature— um, it's usually something that we construct culturally that makes more sense with our culture. Now, I'm by no means suggesting that the Bible wants families, men to have two wives, okay? I think it goes the opposite direction. I'm just saying, for people throughout history, the Bible's full of all kinds of situations. And like we'll see here, it doesn't condemn them always. Sometimes they're accepted at certain points in time. Um, this guy's got two wives. We'll see. It doesn't even work very well for him. The name of, <laughs> of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. This is the basic setup of this story, this family drama, this family sorrow. Now, this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice. So the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phineas were the priests of the Lord. So he's a pretty faithful guy, it seems like. Comes from a great family. He's making these trips 
um, to Shiloh, where he was supposed to go to be with the priests, make these sacrifices, offer his worship to the Lord. Verse 4, on the day when Alkanah sacrificed, he would give proportions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion, because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. So you have one wife with many children, and then one wife who is barren. This is creating sorrow, as we'll see, in Hannah's own heart and life. It creates tension between the two rival wives, and it creates tension between Hannah and God, Hannah and the priest Eli, Hannah and her husband himself. You've got to remember back in this world, not only if someone has trouble having kids and fertile has infertility problems, similar to still many people today, this creates a lot of sorrow uh, and it's a very difficult situation. But back then there were, there were more layers to this, okay? So particularly at this time in the Old Testament, there's not a very well-developed idea of an afterlife. And so in a lot of Old Testament texts, you see your children as being the legacy that you leave the world after you pass away. Without children, you are kind of done. And it's all over at the, the moment you pass away. At the same time, children are the means to support you. Um, women, particularly at this time, were very vulnerable. If they had no family or men in their lives, sons or husbands to support them. In particular, any day now, if, if her husband would have died, she would have found herself in a very tough position. Because his resources would have been left to his sons, which were not her children. And we'll see, they already have drama between the two wives. And so it's very likely she would just be kicked out to the curb. I mean, in all kinds of manners we can think of, she's in a, in a very terrible and tough spot. But the husband loved her. In fact, he gives a double portion of these gifts to her, which perhaps caused the other wife to be jealous and envious. Six, and her rival, rival here is the, the other woman, used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And so this, this other woman knows that this is a source of pain in Hannah's life. And it's constantly probing it and provoking it, using it to agitate her. Worse than that, she uses the occasion of going to the temple, going to worship, to drive this pain in even deeper. I don't think Hannah's alone in an experience where somehow, through a series of mistakes and distortions, some people's experience with worship or with church or with the church community gets gets kind of meshed with some kind of spiritual abuse or some kind of deep pain and sorrow. I know we have people in our congregation who themselves have experienced this. There are folks this morning who, who might experience this. You're not alone. This is a, a real thing. This is something that is not uh, abnormal. It's not a reflection on you. It's not a reflection on God. But for some people, the sorrows and hurts they feel with in their life, they kind of get attached in ways that are destructive and, and not healthy to the very act of, of worship itself. 
as a church, perhaps there's nothing greater than, than when I hear stories of uh, a couple or a family who are coming out of a church background where this was something that happened to them or they haven't been to church in a year or two and because of something like this and they, they come to Sweetwater and they're able to, to find some separation. They're able to find some healing. They're able to find uh, a community, a place, a time to worship where it's not so associated and doesn't go hand in hand with, with the pain and sorrow that they've experienced. It happens year after year. She wouldn't eat even this double portion. And then her husband, Elkanah, said to her in verse 8, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Now, I don't think he's winning perception awards. And I think he's playing this out because he's got his money line here at the, the end of the statement. But watch it, and you tell me what you think. Am I not worth more to you than ten sons? I'm not the best husband in the world. I'm certainly not giving marriage counseling, writing a book on relationship success. But I know this, dudes. A much better question here would be, you are worth more than ten sons. Not, why are you, have you, when was the last time you looked at me? Why are you crying? <laughs> ten kids, and, and this is still, this still wouldn't be more, this still wouldn't be, be enough. Men have overestimated what they bring. Thousands and thousands of years. But I do think the picture we get here is that he genuinely loves her. He genuinely cares for her. Not his greatest moment. Verse 9, after they'd eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. Sometimes church is one of the best places to cry. One of the best places to grieve. One of the best places to, to be honest in a way that's so hard to be honest sometimes elsewhere. She vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you would indeed look on the affliction of the servant, your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but give your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. This is reminiscent of the story of the Exodus in the book of Exodus. The Israelites are slaves, and they cry out to God, and God remembers his servants. God remembers his children, and then he acts in a way to deliver them. And she continued praying before the Lord. Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. Once again, I'm not the best pastor in the world. I certainly haven't written any best-selling books on pastoring, um, but I have got to say, Eli, you're not on the top of your game. If you are mistaking someone in this deep moment of prayer, and you're like, "Okay, we got a drunk here. How are we gonna? How are we gonna kick them out?" Um, I'll say this: some of our, our our people here, they pray very passionately at the church, and I I would never bring up, "Have you been drinking or not?" Um, I won't mention any names. Therefore. Eli took her to be a drunken woman, verse 14. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. This also reminds me of Pentecost in Acts 2. If you remember, the disciples start speaking in tongues, filled with the Spirit. All the people are like, 
you guys have started partying way too early in the morning, Pierre had to get up and go, no, we're not drunk. It's not late enough yet for that to start. Um, and I've always thought from that story, maybe there's something about being in a deep relationship with the Father that does cause us to be unexplainable to people. It does cause us to be intoxicated in such a manner that people's most familiar experience of that kind of intoxication is, is alcohol. I mean, maybe, maybe our prayer life would be more faithful and more closely modeled to Hannah's if someone walked by not knowing what we were doing and wondered what we had been up to, what was controlling us, what was, was, was in our hearts and in our minds. She made this vow. The priest interrupts her, says, how long will you go on being drunk? She answers in verse 15, No, my Lord, I'm, I'm a woman troubled in spirit. I have not drunk wine or strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. And then Eli answered, Then go in peace, and the God of Israel grants your petition that you have made to him. We're, we don't think he actually knows the petition, but, but he now recognizes the situation and blesses her. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Her name, Hannah, actually is very similar to this word favor. Um, you'll be maybe reminded of Mary's story when the angels show up to Mary, the mother of Jesus, uh, and say she is highly favored. The woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. So she's got this, this experience at the temple where she is able to be honest, is able to be heard and seen and recognized and giving a, a blessing. And note that she finds some health from this. She's able to go eat, which is sometimes one of the healthiest things we can do when we're in that really low place. She's able to go and have a face that's no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord, and then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. Now, the birth of Samuel is a miracle birth from a barren woman. This is a common theme throughout the scriptures. But we've also got to recognize that every birth is a miracle birth particularly for anyone familiar with trying to get pregnant and not being able to or taking some time, you become aware that it's, it's really not just a formula. It, it takes a whole lot more than just your mechanical actions for a child to be born. And children are gifts. Children are, are miracles. Because of this, children, throughout the Scriptures and the Gospels with Jesus, always command from God the utmost treatment and care. It is the forces of death in the world that seek to slaughter and oppress children. God and his people are always on the side of protecting, caring, valuing. Whether it's your child, whether it's someone else's child, whether it's an American child, whether it's an Iraqi child, or 
whether it's a child in your town or a child of the border seeking asylum. You don't have to get political or argue about laws to say that as Christians, just as Christians and only this identity, we should be those who stand up for the treatment and caretaking of little ones, of children. Obviously, we're in a very polarizing political time, and it's hard to even mention something like this without people getting tensed up and taking one side or another. And I was so encouraged a few weeks ago when evangelical leaders who have typically taken the, like, we'll just support whatever's going on policy, the white evangelical population, um, and instead put out a pretty pretty wide statement with, with signatures from lots of very mainstream pastors who were very much Trump supporters saying, look, I don't, I don't care what the laws are, I don't care what the situations are, but if you have children in your custody, you should be giving them soap and toothbrushes. You should be, you should be trying to give them a bed. You should be doing your best to give them proper care, physical and mental. The church community that goes down in the history books is looking the other way, not caring about children, no matter who they are, what they've done, or what their parents have done, is a, a community that is going to go down history on the wrong side of the kingdom of God and its agenda. The man, Elkanah, and his, all his house went up to offer to the Lord, verse 21, the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah said, her husband said to her, Do what seems best to you. Now he's starting to learn, okay? Just, yeah, if that seems the right decision to you, go for it. Wait until you've weaned him only. May the Lord establish his words. The woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her along with the three-year-old bull, some flour, skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young, about three years old. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli the priest. And she said, Oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord, and he worshiped the Lord there. And so with this, Samuel is dedicated to God, consecrated to serve and live in the temple, to grow up with Eli as kind of an adoptive father to take over as Eli's successor as priest when his two sons go off of the beaten path. And Hannah prayed and said, verse 2, My heart exalts in the Lord, my horn is exalted in the Lord, my mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren is born seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. Maybe she's thinking of her rival wife here. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust 
He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by night shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces against them. He will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. This is a very, very, very famous song that Hannah sings here. It's a song that Mary plays off of when she has her song in the early chapters of Luke after giving birth to Jesus. And I just real quickly noticed this is not the song you might expect. You might expect a song of just like, thanks for giving me a kid. This is the song of revolution. Political, social, religious revolution. Those who are well-fed are now hungry, and those who are hungry are now well-fed. Those who are rich are being brought low. Those who are poor are being brought up. Those who are strong are having their weapons disintegrate on them, while those who have been weak and oppressed, faced with injustice, are being given strength in the Lord. Samuel grows up to be one of the most important figures in the history of Israel. It seems that she recognizes this, sees this as a potential when Samuel is born. And so there's two ways to read the story. You can read it on a, on, a, on a smaller, kind of personal, dramatic, emotional story of a family level. And there's a larger way to read the story where you put it in the context of God's plan, his actions, the huge impact Samuel has in God and his redemptive plan to bring salvation to the world. There's things to teach us in both aspects. We, we look at it on a, just a personal family scale. Hannah here serves as a model of faith for us, not just a model of a woman who's struggling with infertility. There are others, other women like that in the scriptures. Hannah stands out as very unlike most of those women she in, instead seems to serve as a model of faithfulness for all of God's people, regardless of the situation they find themselves in. She's the model of obedience, faith, hope. She's the model of prayer. Hannah's dedication of Samuel is a model of commitment and commitment to giving back to the Lord, to raising her son to know and be known and to serve the Lord. We might just ask ourselves this question, what if more Samuels were raised in the world? What if, what if more people modeled Hannah and, and dedicated their children to the Lord in such a way that they would grow in the love and worship and service of Samuel? Samuel becomes the last great judge or political leader in the nation of Israel in a time of turmoil. He becomes the great priest of Israel. He becomes the kingmaker in Israel. He becomes a great prophet of Israel. Samuel also very interestingly models political faithfulness for us as the church struggles all the time with how can we be faithful in such a political particularly polarized situation. Here's how I think he does this. Very quickly, 
He provides a very interesting lesson, I think, in faithfully assuming a prophetic role without aligning with one political party or administration. It's a strong hint at the way God acts towards and alongside political power without identifying completely with any political power. So Samuel confers legitimacy and kingship. He's a kingmaker. At the same time, Samuel is very quick and willing to take it away. He raises Saul up. Saul makes some bad decisions. And he takes Saul out and installs David. There's, there's no sense of indefinite loyalty, servitude. Saul has nothing on Samuel as a faithful prophet that makes him unable to speak truth to power makes him unable to make adjustments. Even more significantly, Samuel continues to, on the part of God, warn the people of Israel against having a king at all. If you know the story, God does not think it's a good idea for his people to have a king. And Samuel, even when David is his chosen king, chapter 8 in particular, is very bold about telling the people, just, by the way, you shouldn't even have this king. I know I, I know I picked him. I made him king. I know we might be enjoying some of the things he's doing right now, but just remember, all of this is still technically disobedience, unfaithfulness. Our, our primary, ultimate loyalty is to God and should be to God alone. And his warning, his actions against Saul's warnings while David is king, they hang over the earthly kings of Israel like a permanent placeholder that prevents any king from claims of being self-made or self-legitimizing or directly or indefinitely approved by God. And Samuel, I think, for us, illustrates the gap prophets must walk in order to be a prophetic witness in this world, calling political orders to accountability. If you've been with us for a while you know that my stance towards politics tends to be the church is called to speak truth and power. The church always has gotten in trouble throughout history. gets in even more trouble, I think, today when we align ourselves with one or another candidate or party. It doesn't mean there can't be preferences. It doesn't mean you can't agree with one side more than the other. It does mean that the kingdom of God is always, should always be your clearest allegiance. And to the extent that a Democratic Party or Republican Party or Libertarian Party or a Green Party winds up with the agenda of the kingdom of God, then you can support and encourage. And to the extent that a Democratic or Republican or Libertarian or Green Party or whatever else kind of third party party uh, that have no shot of winning anything ever exists, <laughs> out there, whenever they don't, it's also our responsibility to speak up. I think a pastor's job is not to support a candidate. It's to speak truth to every candidate. I think a church's job is not to align itself with a party. It's to speak truth to all the parties, even when they're ones that we perhaps align ourselves more closely with, even when they're the ones that perhaps are the ones we vote for, would vote to reelect. The prophet's, the prophet's sweet spot is pissing everyone off. 
And this is why it's a huge red flag for me if there's a leader, a Christian, a church who one seems to equate all of life with politics, like there's nothing more to life, like there's not more to the community of God than just using and working through and being associated with politics. And it's also a big red flag to me when you have criticism that ever only really goes one way. I don't care if you're a hardcore Republican. I don't care if you're a hardcore Democrat. I will tell you, both of these people are in this room this morning. I will tell you, both of your parties have big problems in them. Both of your parties have issues that run counter to the revealed will of God in Christ. And the moment you feel so weakened and subservient to some political power that you can't speak truth to that, that you can't work from the inside, that you can't lovingly speak across an aisle, the moment you're less Samuel than you are Saul. I mean, if you're identifying with the character in these stories, you become the crazy political guy, Saul. Not the prophet Samuel who will transform everything for this nation of Israel. So there's a smaller way of reading the story. There's a bigger way of reading the story, too, looking at its larger context. The story fits into a much larger pattern and story of God's redeeming the world. It reminds us of two very important biblical tales, both the birth of Moses who then frees his people from slavery in Egypt, and also the birth of Christ, who frees his people from slavery to sin and to death. Samuel, as he grows up at this temple, grows in wisdom and stature. Jesus, as he grows up after being presented at the temple, grows in wisdom and stature. Hannah writes this song of revolution after the birth. Mary riffs off Hannah writes this song of revolution. The parallels are plenty. And it's important that in both of those stories, the Exodus story, the Jesus' birth story, even here in Samuel, we recognize the place that these these children are born is a place of slavery, bondage, or brokenness. In Egypt, they're enslaved. In 1 Samuel, there's political threats. There are religious threats. There's chaos at large and within the family. When Jesus is born, there's, again, religious and national threats. There's chaos to God's own promise and covenant to his people. It's important to realize that because we often imagine that we're not there. We're not in a world of slavery. We, We don't identify as slaves. We are not in bondage. We are not in in and involved and affected deeply by a broken world. And, and, and to an extent, it's very true. Because of Christ, we've arrived in the promised land. I've been taken out of Egypt. But it's equally true that we often return to the low life of slavery and bondage. That we often spend times weeping and agonizing, like Hannah. In, in order to really recognize our freedom or liberation, it's important to recognize the slavery or the bondage. In order to recognize the victory, it's important to recognize the the injustice and the, the losses. We need to know our slavery because freedom only makes sense to people who are or were in bondage. And all three of these stories, Moses being born, Samuel being born, Jesus being born, 
They're stories about God's redemption. They're stories about God setting his people free, doing something new in the world. And in all three, how does he do this? Through the birth of a child. Not through some king, not through a super PAC, not to a multinational alliance, savvy marketing plan, old school ancient social media. It's an infant who has to be breastfed, who has to be changed, who has to be rocked to sleep, who has to be taught, who has to be grown, who has to be dedicated, who has to be trained. I've got to wonder if, if, if this tells us something more about God's method of operation than just being a handful of stories. I mean, indeed, the central story of salvation for us as Christians is God becoming a baby, the incarnation, the Son of God, existing eternally as God himself enters into our world as a fetus, then an infant, and a one-year-old, and a two-year-old, and a three-year-old. God invades our world with new life. In one way, this is the heart of the gospel. And we can read this very literally, I think, throughout the scriptures. And we can also see that the setting is most often surprising or ordinary. With Moses, with Samuel, with Jesus, this is not a very highly publicized birth. This is not a birth that seems destined and great from the very beginning with a future lined up for them for them to just easily walk into. It's the one that happens in our backyard to the people we weren't expecting, to the kid who we might not have thought had those kind of opportunities in front of them. We might say that God's reaction to the sin and, and death in his creation is, is less of turning into a problem solver as much as the person creator. When the Israelites are slaves in Egypt, what does he do? He births a child. When the nation is going through all of this turmoil, what does he do? He gives Hannah a boy. When all of world history centers in on this one moment for God to come through on his promise of eternal salvation, what does he do? He opens a womb. And a child comes out. The story of Mary and Jesus, it goes all the way back to the story of Moses, it goes all the way back to this story of Hannah and Samuel. The birth of a child often, it seems, perhaps as a pattern, leads to God's act of freedom and redemption. The Bible, we could say, is a book about the blessing of a child over and over and over again. And its center story, its main character, is about this. God coming to free and save us in Christ. This child is Moses. This child is Samuel. This child is Jesus of Nazareth. And because of Jesus of Nazareth, this child is you and I, as we're found belonging to Jesus. If you look closely at the promises and, and gifts of salvation given to us in the New Testament, what you find is we have none of them outside of Christ, outside of a union with him. It's in Jesus, we're told that we can call God our own Father. 
so we can assume and experience our own adoption into his family. It's with Jesus, the son, that you and I are able to walk out of slavery and death and into a new life. It's in Christ we make a journey. United to Christ, we enter into this promised land. If the Bible is a book about a child and that child is primarily Jesus, then it's also a book about us and our children and our daily lives as we find them all wrapped up in Jesus and his story and the offer of salvation given to us. The many children of this world, it seems, were all meant for this one child. The one born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth, who traveled healing and teaching in Galilee. He journeyed to Jerusalem as a young adult to find death. A few days later, was raised from the grave and ascended to God's right hand. When we are in Egypt, when we are barren, provoked in sorrow and distress when we are in slavery and bondage it's important for us to remember that our lives are not ultimately defined by those things but instead by the victory and the plan of God in Christ when we worry about our children when we make plans for our children it's important to remember those plans aren't ultimately dependent on our skills and resources, but on the love and inclusion of God's one Son, Christ. The story of Samuel being born, the story of Hannah having a child, is a story that reminds us that our ultimate identities and our ultimate futures are not defined by the things that so often we get trapped into thinking define us. Like Hannah, we're at the temple and all we can do is not eat and cry and weep and be reminded year after year after year about this one thing that we'll never be able to overcome and that will ruin us. And instead, the scriptures say, focus on Focus on a birth. Focus on the child. He is the one. His actions are the actions that wrap up the world in the most meaningful way. And our lives and the lives of our children, they belong to the child, the one who is God incarnate. We are not our own. Our children are not our own. Our bodies and souls, both in our life and in our death, we belong to our faithful Savior, Jesus the Christ.